0: Welcome to Music Wise Podcast, everybody. I am your host, Rona Bennett, based in America. I am an artist and a personal power life coach. And I am joined by my co-host, Bindu Duknuk, who is based in Amsterdam. And she's an entertainment attorney, an IP attorney. I mean, she got so many slashes, y'all. And she's a musician. And we've come together. We were bringing our forces together to give you a holistic approach to the music industry. We touch on everything, okay? From the mental to the to the physical, to the, to the key players, to the contracts, to the spiritual even. We know that this is a holistic process being a part of this industry. And we also endeavor to bring you some really incredible people who are uh, doing amazing things that we hope can tell you through their journey, how you can up-level in yours. So, Bindu, you want to tell them who we have on the show today? Yes,
1: absolutely. Now, this episode is Especially uh, special for me because I get to introduce my pal, Mr. Lucas Keller. Hey,
2: how are you doing?
1: Hey. Uh, Lucas is the president of Milk and Honey, and now it is Milk and Honey Music and Sports. But Lucas will definitely give us the full scope on that a bit later. That's right. But for people who are unfamiliar with Lucas, which I can hardly imagine, but if you don't know who Lucas is, Lucas is one of the hottest names in the entertainment business and sports business now. He represents many clients, songwriters, top producers, artists, and now also athletes. And what I always liked about Lucas' philosophy is that he, he has a very particular philosophy and tends to do things differently. Milk and Honey is, is in that sense not your regular management company. So who else would be better suited to talk about management
0: than my pal Lucas, right? <laughs> I mean, what are we saying right now? Thank Lucas, you. welcome Thanks to for the having show. Now, this is
2: uh, <laughs> this is fun. Uh, because been doing I've been friends for a long time. It's great to have friends halfway around the world. Uh and uh and just yeah, excited to talk with you guys today and uh and answer some questions. If I, if I have the answers anyway.
0: Oh, I'm pretty sure you do, man.
2: I still tell people every year that I'm building the plane while I'm flying it, but nobody (laughs) believes me.
0: (laughs) Well, you're kicking butt doing it. I mean, wow. I want to ask you, you have a a very clear philosophy about milk and honey. You want to share with everybody what that is?
2: Yeah. Um, I, um, I had come from big management companies and, uh, and when I wanted to do something on my own, knew that it was idealist to really just do something on my own, um, realized that it takes a village. And so I wanted to build a company and a team um and saw the value in that, which I could get into more. But um, you know, wanted to wanted to build something more boutique, wanted to spend my own money, not have uh, any kind of partner funding us um so that we could make decisions the way you know, do things the way we want to. there's there's often, you know, investment into music, be it financial investment or time, um, is often misunder always misunderstood by people that aren't in the space. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wanted to do things on my own term, uh, knowing that uh any partners of mine would tell me to abandon an artist a year before they happened, uh, focus on other things, maybe because they'd be about revenue and not necessarily about creative uh and so I always, you know, I always just wanted to make our own decisions, which was really important. And then the idea was, you know, that, that I had been an artist manager for, I don't know, 2002 to 2014 at that time when I started the company. So uh, 12 years, if I still know how to do math. And the idea <laughs> was, you know, could, could we focus on songwriters and record producers? And so I kind of pivoted into representing songwriters and producers. Um, I had... One client from the prior company I was at that that I that I still have you know for twelve years now there was a big songwriter, and I and I just realized I said I want to be an artist manager but I said I'll get back into that later and we really used having songwriters and producers as leverage to build an artist business but kind of zooming out again you know the philosophy was you know could, could we exist somewhere in between the independents and the, the the solo practitioner and the majors you know could we be a really strong boutique. Uh, we're 23 employees today. Wow! And I think we have I think we have the strength and the and the uh, you know and, and the systems and uh, and and just have have a, a great company that I know companies that have 200 employees don't have. You know, I learned being inside a big you know a couple big companies. I I learned that a lot of big companies don't have great systems, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and so that was really important for us was really building great systems and and having a real culture in the company. And so, so I, you know, there's no one philosophy, but um, you know, I had this kind of idea of, you know, is there kind of like, can you be a mini major, you know, can you be a boutique company that has real influence? And it just so happened that targeting the songwriter and producer space and controlling the songs um, really allowed us to do that and not have to have the, the, uh, you know, staff that that we would need to be, to be a big artist company. So,
0: wow. so yeah.
2: Wow
1: that was pretty pioneering at the time, wasn't it? Because I, be, I bet people were yeah. saying like, Lucas, what are you thinking? What are you doing representing mm-hmm. songwriters? Well, I, th- I think
2: there were, yeah, I think producer management is about 40 years old. Um, I think Sandy Robertson is credited with creating it. I think Mark Bevan and Andy Kipnis who got this, this company, AAM, kind of took the torch in the mid 80s. There's, there's a lot of companies, like people that have done this, but it's always been like one or two people. It was never right. a company. And... And it just was kind of a thing that wasn't that there wasn't a huge value proposition, right? It was guys pushing yeah. deal memos on mixers and rock producers, and in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, that was a, that was a real job. Guys that were getting paid four, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars fees to produce albums. Mm-hmm. Um, it just I didn't I didn't think the managers were really uh, I didn't know what the value was. They're doing deals occasionally. They're bringing in an album for their 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 producer to produce. I saw more of a world where we're really in the creative conversation. We'll get a call from a guy at a record label and say, hey, we're starting this record. And that could be a developing artist. That could be a really big establishing really established artist. Um, we're in that creative conversation. And that's something that didn't really happen, I think, prior to the last, like, six, seven years. So I think it was good timing where, you know, we were we were able to start, and also I think we're we're probably the most entrepreneurial of the of the producer writer managers uh, without question. You know, the businesses we build out with them, and the ventures we create, and I think just we're not guys that ever told our clients, um, you know, stay in your lane. You know, we 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 definitely kind of are their creative muse on building businesses, and and um, you know, I mean, I think to I mean, even in the client we work on together, you know, we're always you know we're always kind of thinking about other outside the box ideas it's not just it's not just hey kid uh, uh, get in the tour bus yeah, you know yeah. <laughs> uh, and i think a lot of managers don't really they view all that stuff as diversions we built some great businesses you know with, with and for people that that you know were not uh that didn't end up being diversions that were you know, that were a great idea you know so uh,
0: I'm sorry, you got, I got a question for you, speaking about you know, yep. type, all types of managers. I mean, there's all kinds of managers out there, right? Uh, lawyers turned managers, artists turned managers. I mean, you name it, uh, talk about staying out of your lane. What do you think makes for a good manager? Mm, and especially as a it pertains of, to an yeah. artist manager, since I heard you kind of bring that up too.
2: Yeah, a, a good manager, uh, it's a lot of things. A good manager... You would hire a good manager because it's someone that you would believe could lead you into battle. I think that's important. Uh, You hire a good manager because you understand that a manager in 2021 is different than a manager in 1994. My job is not to just work a record label and call the agent and call the publicist. The job is to really create opportunity. You know, I'm not waiting on a music publisher for my songwriters to, to bring them to bring them opportunities to pitch their songs, to find sync opportunities, to um, you know, to make sure their deals are all straight. You know, all of the job of managing a artist or a songwriter, producer. Um, you know, our job is not just to advise them uh, and to to be old school, where you really didn't need more than one person as a manager. Just call the record label, call the agent. You know, just you're herding cats. Right. Um, you know, that's not that's not where we are today. We're we're in a world where you know, it is really incumbent on the manager to provide opportunities, uh, and so it's not just advice. It really is about providing opportunities. So I think the the modern manager it has to be multi-hyphenate. I don't think it's just mm-hmm. oh well, you know, I give you great advice. It has to be someone that you know that you view as a leader, someone that has influence in the community, and someone that can give you advice, but also go. Dig up opportunities. You yeah, know? Um, I still, I still think we're like as a company, we're total bird dogs. You know, we're constantly finding opportunities, bringing them to clients, and um, and that's and that's why where I think hmm. people want a manager today, they want the opportunity, not just the advice. As a matter of fact, I think I think a lot of artists don't necessarily need smart artists don't need the advice they used to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in many ways, the the I was talking to a client about this over the weekend, but. You know, people don't want the forty-year-old A and R guy telling them what songs to cut anymore. Really, like the artists, the artists do the A and R, and so really smart man, really smart artists kind of have an idea of what they want to do. I think artists are smarter now. Yeah, they have more access, they have more tools available to them, and so they require managers that can not just advise them but can also bring opportunity. Nice. So, you're
1: totally right, and it also just ties in to how the music industry has changed basically after 2000. Um, back in the day, yeah, perhaps you could just get away with, you know, being the babysitter, making sure the passport was packed and make sure that the client had and a booking agency, a publisher and a label. And that was that. And the rest would start sort itself out. But nowadays, the music industry has become pretty much a tech industry and Artists have to be brands and be bigger than the music themselves. So you want somebody who can translate your identity and your personality, if you will, as an
0: artist, into a vision. Yeah. Speak.
2: Yeah.
0: D- Lucas, how do you feel? Well, first and foremost, do you feel the mm-hmm. pandemic changed the industry? And if so, how so?
2: Um, I mean, it, it changed, uh, you know, for I could just say for us as a company it changed in that everybody came off the road on the artist side, which, which really affected artists revenues. Oh yeah. And we had to work, we had to work twice as hard to get to the same place on artists, find other opportunities, uh, brand opportunities, streaming opportunities, et cetera. Everybody, you know, for the artists, they got to go back in the studio and make music in a way that they probably never were able to before, you know, a lot of free, free to bandwidth to create, which was, which is good. Uh, you know, there's two kinds of artists. There's artists that can't, live with being off the road. And then there's artists that, that are thankful to be off the road right. and are, are glad, <laughs> glad to get a breather right. for the first time for many of them in a decade or two. Okay. Um, if you, if you look at, if you look at heritage talent, you know, like, like older artists, you know, they, they, they have all this pressure to go on tour to support their families and their teams. And the you know, it's like the drummer that, Oh, my second kid is starting college. And I really need that. Yeah. a to September tour in sheds, yeah. you know, it's, it's, so I think that was really hard for touring artists. Um, for us, it was great because we, um, you know, we started selling catalogs um, and not that not something that we really prompted our clients to do, but something that kind of I think the industry heating up for for catalog sales yeah. and multiples increasing and new companies showing up. I mean, I still have about one Zoom call a week with a new company in the space buying Um you know, it was really our clients wanting to do it and just the space being, uh, vibrant and and people wanting to, to kind of overpay for catalogs. So, I mean, we'll have done by May of this year, a hundred million in transactions in the last year. And it's, it's crazy. It's a gold rush, that I would not have expected. Um, I would not have expected, you know, I didn't really get into the business to, to sell, you know, to, to sell things like that. It wasn't really what I thought. And I also, I was always taught that, uh, you know, uh, songwriters should never sell their publishing. Should never sell their songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a lot's changed, and uh, and so touring went down, catalog sales went up. Uh, we had to work hard putting everybody into work. You know, and really doing Zoom sessions. Some of our clients uh, did them and enjoyed them. Some of them were really reluctant to do them and eventually came around. Um, you know, we're with athletes, about a hundred clients. So keeping wow. people. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's a lot. Keeping people, um, you know, keeping people busy uh, and keeping them inspired in the pandemic was very difficult. Now, to the second part of the question is, you know, where are we after the pandemic? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And what what I think we'll we're, we're. I think, yeah, I think we're in a, I think we're in a really, if the world was heading toward, I don't know, like, what level of nerds we all are, but if you know the <laughs> concept, me? you know the concept of, <laughs> If you know the concept of you know Ray Kurzweil's singularity and you view the kind come of come on, Lucas, talk about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the, if you if you believe in the exponential growth curve of technology, yes, and the idea the idea that we're headed toward a place where we're going to just be on screens all the time. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I even just the concept of like I didn't believe in self driving cars were going to be a thing, and my friend made a really good point to me. He's like, kids value this more than they do this. So it's very clear that we're headed toward a place where it's all about the screen and and technology and being uh, in in the matrix, so to speak. And I think the pandemic is a reminder, like, we don't want that. Like, we we need human interaction. We want to go back and see live talent. You know, we want to go back to restaurants. We want to go, you know, so I think that the, if I look at the numbers from this last week, and projections that came out the live nation put out. Um, I think we're in the first year of what I guess we call kind of the revamped roaring twenties. And I think that the, the, the music economy post pandemic is going to be super healthy. First of all, the streaming kept, the streaming <laughs> kept going, you know, the whole time. Yes, uh, true. so, so there was nothing wrong with the recorded side. Uh, And then, and I think the touring thing is just going to come back really strong. And I, and I think there's all kinds of other economic ramifications of like, you know, people are going to start leaning into credit cards. People are going to overspend like they did. Like there's all kinds of other issues, but I think the first, I think the first two years out of the gate are going to be incredibly strong. And so, uh, you know, I think that, I think we know that we, we know that remote is an option. We know that, Maybe when I do a, a call with somebody in London in the future, I'll do it as a Zoom instead of a phone call. It's great to see people, yeah. uh, but I what I can tell mm-hmm. is we we want human connection again, and I think that the the live and just experiential space in general is going to be incredibly strong. And you know uh, we're we're going to further head on the music right side into um, we're going to further head into to to streaming in a way that I think eventually replaces. Terrestrial radio, and you know, we saw a real dip in the first three months. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess, in the Netherlands, the, the boom of stemmers, but over here, the ASCAP BMI is etc. Uh, we saw a real, which we're just seeing now for BMI. We saw a real drop, probably to the tune of twenty to thirty percent in in radio revenue. Yeah, just because, I mean, I mean, it was you know that that first few months of the pandemic was a real shell shock, and I think people. Uh, You know, especially without people in their cars and uh, and and listening to to terrestrial radio like that, that we will see a real dip there. And also something I didn't really realize until recently, which is how much uh, live does make up performance Mm -hmm. rights. So, so it's 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 interesting. I, I so I I also I also don't know if any of those companies exist in the in the future, but I do know that digital. Probably replaces replaces all of them. So uh, long way around to answer your question about the pandemic, but I'm really I'm really optimistic. I see. It was great to see that see that our clients could could survive it. You know. Yeah. Uh, So
0: I love to hear you speaking so optimistically. You know what I'm saying? Because we got we were one of the hardest industries hit, no doubt about it. I mean, it sat everybody down, and I still marvel at what has happened to our musicians, you know, the, you know, drummer that you were talking about or the keyboard player that you rely on that income. Like, what happened, you know? I just hope that everybody was able to make it out okay. So we really got blasted.
2: It's really, it's really fragile, the kind of uh, subtle degrees of separation between what we all do for a living. Like, just the idea that, I mean, I have friends that, I was, you know, I own my own business and it's a great business, but I have friends that like have salary jobs at Live Nation that
1: yeah,
2: far, yeah. E- far eclipse my uh, living. And I'd be so jealous of them or like guys that are senior brass at CAA or yeah. William Morris. And I mean, and these guys, like I, you know, a friend of mine, uh, two months into the pandemic, I called him, I said, geez, man, how you doing? He said, man, I'm just Smoking cigarettes and day trading. You know, it's like it's like these guys were just sitting around, they couldn't do anything. I mean, their whole their whole existence just is stop. booking tours, yeah. booking tours, and guys that are booking arenas and stadiums yeah. and you know, and then all of a sudden nothing. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the only reason Live Nation was able to report revenue is because they were smart and they rolled up a bunch of management companies a number of years ago. And so there was still they're still participating in other things. But I mean when you tear down the whole global touring business. I mean, it's like, if you think even just the, the you know, think about however hard the three of us might have gotten hit. Think about, uh, think about just the amount of venues, brick and mortar venues Absolutely. around the world that sat empty for a year. Just the cost yeah, of I that know. is, is mind melting. Yeah, man. So, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's true. I, I think um, what was baffling to me is the response of governments in general to, or the, the lack of response, or adequate response, we should say, to the entertainment industry. I think it's also because they don't understand our industry as well as they might pretend. And um, it was kind of an attitude, if you don't speak about it, it maybe does not exist. But of course, you have so many creatives right. working in this industry, and it is a very large industry. And I don't think that people truly understood the um, the fastness the and the the amount of people employed in this industry. So it's, it's going Absolutely. to be interesting to, just to see how much of those companies actually do survive because I know that, I mean, a lot of concert venues have a really hard time at the moment. And mm-hmm. luckily, and, and especially in the Netherlands, a lot of is state-funded and subsidized, and that might actually be the survival of a lot of things. Thank, go- thank goodness for that. But otherwise, mm. culture and our cultural heritage would have been
0: pretty endangered.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no question.
0: Lucas, what made you parlay into sports? What's up with What is music in sports? How do they marry in your world?
2: Uh, completely random deal that showed up in October. And uh, I grew up a football fan, but uh, it just was like it was an opportunity for us to invest in a new vertical. Um, I never really thought about doing anything outside of music. Once we had success in music, the next things you start to look at in this town are, you know, TV, Mm. film, comedy, Mm -hmm. digital, you know, like, like digital content, which is, you know, I think the digital space has probably been the hottest topic in the last eight years here. Um, Don't really care about it. Don't really want to represent influencers. Just kind of, you know, we could, and the thing is, if you look at, if you look at the projections for the music business, like I think the, the. Goldman Sachs report from last year is a great, is a great uh, uh, summary of where we're headed for the next decade. Uh, there's no reason to do anything else other than music. Like you can have a fabulous business and living just doing music. I think we, uh, you know, the way we looked at it was this is a deal and an opportunity to get on a relatively high level in the sports and, and start a new vertical, you know, which could double our business. Mm-hmm. And, and then so, so you know, signing signing agents that had fifteen guys in the NFL, which obviously is the the American Football League. We we um you know we we just weren't going to have that opportunity again. Yeah. And so the the synergy between the two is basically there's tons of relationships, and I, I didn't think there was any to be honest. And then I realized like, you know, having like 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 these guys want to go to Coachella and Rolling Loud Festival and hang out and meet artists. You know, like what is you know, what is an athlete listening to on game day? Like doing a yeah, branded yeah. Spotify play, yeah, you know, yeah. like the relationships we have with, you know, Apple and Beats by Dre and like down the hall from the music marketing guys, the sports marketing guy, like there's, you know, there's so many, uh, so many different overlaps, like our relationships with ad agencies in New York, um, you know, the, the, the overlap is, Crazy, just in between you know sports initiatives and music initiatives. It's it's a it's an easy introduction to meet those people, and you know in a sense, an athlete is going to do what he's going to do on the field. I think what our job is is to maximize their career off the field. Uh. You know? So it's brand opportunities. It's can we blow them up on socials? Can we you know what types of value can we add offline? And um, and so that's a lot of that's a lot of what our what our initiative is. But we we exclusively represent them and we see 15 headed toward, you know, 50 and onward to a hundred and, you know, kind of multi-genre expansion into, you know, into, you know, soccer and baseball and, and basketball. And, um, it's something that we're, it's something I can see really, really scaling for us in the co- coming years. So, um, you know, we, we hired a handful of people to do it. Uh, so it, it's nice cause it doesn't weigh down my bandwidth. on trying to run a music company, but it's, um, it's it's exciting, and I you know the only other company to really do that in this town is a management company is uh, is Rock Nation. Uh, you know they, uh-huh. they, they got into sure. it a few a few years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, and and we're we're now we're trying to do it. You know the some of the big agencies are you know CAA and Wasserman, which just bought Paradigm. Like these companies are in music as well, uh, but but you know we're, we're a tiny management company, so I think we have a different value proposition. Tiny like we're, huh? We're, yeah Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> look it's i mean in comparison to those companies absolutely yeah, well yeah, yeah yeah but mighty, no, but, I, mighty. I get, I, I, but mighty <laughs> i get what you're saying by the way yeah, people people uh some of my friends say to me you got to stop it with this boutique management i mean come out. on and uh no but it's a, it's a real it's a real thing i mean i still you know our LA offices when we're open it's still only 12 people like it still feels very uh you know, very very sticky and very hands-on, and just you know, like uh, it's 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 good. You but know?
1: it ties back to your um, philosophy that you're carrying out and the kind of company that you want to be. Yeah. Music wise, Lucas, I wanted to ask you about the the quote I read at the Out Magazine uh, interview with you. Oh yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll read a little bit because um, you said there, and I want I. That quote just has so many layers, and I, I would, we would like to discuss it a little bit about that. You said, I think we're seeing the death of the artist. Songs are fully alive, but we're hitting a point where somebody is more interested in entertainment and not really interested in who the artist is or what they bring. Um, they just love what's on a playlist, and you're kind of worried. About that, from the career perspective, because it will be very difficult going on and moving forward um, to actually create a sustainable and long-term artist career. Please do explain.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> always an exception. Lots of exceptions to that. It's a <clears throat> sweeping statement in a sense. I think what I'm kind of touching on is, you know, once we started making things about Playlists. Um, I mean, remember, I start right at the beginning of the descent into Napster era, right? So I start right as Napster is happening, and my world is kind of like you know, listening stations and end caps at Best Buy and Tower Records and like CDs and what's our IO and how much are we shipping and like like in that in that era, like I that's the beginning of my career, and you know, like to see things evolve into playlist culture where it's very difficult to get people to consume a full album. Um, you know, I start to look at things like, I think people are agnostic sometimes to the artist. People know a song, you know, you're seeing more songs than ever that are 98 or 99% familiar at say IR radio in America. You know, you you see a song that's a huge hit and nobody really knows who the artist is, right. Yeah. And they don't necessarily pay yeah. attention. Um, and then you have exceptions, right. Where there's, where there's a real lifestyle movement, you know, like like people people love Billy Eilish whether yes. the, the song is a hit or not whether the song sounds like a hit um you know, and so there's a real artist affinity. my concern is like in aggregate, there's a lot of pop music and there's a lot of music where it's not necessarily about the artist and it's about the song, yeah, but even more even more so than that it used to be. You were, I feel like building an artist, the best example I was ever given about building an artist is trying to pay your blackjack or sorry, trying to pay your mortgage at the dollar blackjack table. Um, Ouch. You know, it takes, <laughs> it's, it really, it really is. That's breaking an artist. Like you have to, you have to have 6,000 little wins and you don't know which one is going to help you turn the corner. Like that's what's, true. what's the tipping point? Mm. Nobody really knows it's about this opportunity and that look and playing this show right, and, right. And so I think building an artist used to be a snowball, like eventually kind of just, you know, you were picking up snow and eventually you're, it's like, okay, I've arrived. And I think now it's like, you can have a hit song with no guarantee to ever have another one. And so it requires you coming with the best music and the best content every time. But it's also about a lot of following a lot of the data, you know, like, like, like figuring out that like, like I, I kind of learned one day that like songs don't get, ship to radio major labels anymore. Like there's no radio plan at a major label when a song comes out. I have huge songs, songs that become huge songs from huge artists that don't have a radio plan when they are released. And it's because the labels want to look at the data first.
1: Yeah. so they the want data to see from that it
2: streams, where? Oh, it, the streams, okay. They want to see that it's streaming. They want <laughs> to see that people are reacting before they go try to you ship a lukewarm single to radio that dies at 27 on the chart. They want to find out, okay, something is something is you know happening here and they feel confident to then take it to terrestrial radio because streaming leads and 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 wow. you know new media leads and old media follows yeah, right yeah. so 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 i think that for all of those reasons it's really hard to just you know like you look at artists like Maroon 5 or Imagine Dragons or you know these artists have a formula like like they are coming with hit songs every time at some point you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, if they had like 24 number ones or like how many, you know, Mm -hmm. I think at that point you have a real seat at the table, but there's artists that haven't figured out the formula and they're one hit in right? and they might just be one big song on a playlist forever. And there may not be another one. And sure, uh, history is littered with one hit wonders in the eighties, especially in the (laughs) nineties, but, but still, uh, I think it's, I think it's becoming harder also. And I won't get into this, but if you look at the growth from you know, say '94 to 2021 of artists, and yeah. the barrier of tech barrier of technology coming down yeah. uh, in terms of being able to create music. Hit songs are made in bedrooms, as they say. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're you're looking at so much clutter to cut through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to be an, it's hard to be an artist and keep coming with something that's successful. It's really hard to be an artist. Wow.
0: Yeah, that is evolving. It's going to be interesting to see what the landscape looks like. You know, I think a lot of uh, classic artists, you know, that have been out there, they at least have their touring life uh, to rely on. But for new artists, wow, to establish yourself. I mean, I don't know where artist development is. It's just kind of, yeah, I I agree with you. What is the formula anymore? Is there such a thing? (laughs) And and things are changing so fast. I mean, as soon as you were hopping on, um, what is it, Snapchat? That's like, it's cool, but it's not what the thing is. And I wonder if TikTok is as huge as it is right now. What's next? It's it's like it's moving quicker and quicker.
2: Well, yeah, so Snapchat and TikTok and Trailer and all these companies have something in common, and that it's they speak to a young generation that cares about short form, mm-hmm. and uh, and so short form content really matters. Uh, yeah, they've just figured out, you know, 10, 10 years ago that you know bite size was better than you know, bigger content. And so, uh, so that, that's all those companies are speaking to. I mean, I don't know It hurts some of those companies, like, you know, the, the TikTok thing kind of hurts me from a perspective of like, I care about art, but I, I, who am I kidding? Like most of my job is putting pop music out into the world. So <laughs> what am I talking about? You know, <laughs>
0: did you just like, crap you on know. pop music? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like it's not my, you know, my favorite thing to say to a client when they send over a song that they that they love that I think is not that good. Is I just say, "Well, it ain't Hotel California," so
0: playing on though. wise, Lucas, when I met you, you gave me one of the best glasses of scotch uh, I've ever had. So what? Yeah. What? And I forget what was it called, the Octomore or something like yes. that.
2: Oh, yeah, Octomore. Uh, Have you
0: discovered uh, anything else that's super dope that you got in your stash right now?
2: uh, uh, Octomore Octomore is still my favorite. Mm. They make, so Bruce Ladek makes Octomore. It's one of the famous Islay scotches in the the western Islay region. Um, They have a scotch called Octomore 6.3. And 6.3 is really hard to find. And it's 258 parts per million of peat. So it is the smokiest. It's like basically drinking. A, if you could, if you could liquefy a campfire and drink it, that's wow. what it tastes. Wow. Um, so that's pretty good. Uh there's also a, um, there's also a, a scotch called a uh, Michelle. I'm going to mess this up, Michel Corvair. Uh, Michel Corvair. It's, it's a scotch, yeah, yes. it's a scotch called, it's a French uh, company and it's mm-hmm. a, it's a scotch mm-hmm. called a. Called Candid, and Candid <laughs> is, or that whole that whole Michelle Carreira is a is a French uh, distiller that actually distills Scotch because it has to come from Scotland. So they get Scotch from Scotland and they age it in Burgundy barrels in France. Mm.
1: Mm. And
2: uh, I had a client turn me on to it. I'm in love with it. It's amazing. Nice.
1: Oh, Michelle. Those are out. like the
2: those are the recent favorites. Okay, so. thank you.
1: Okay, we'll yeah. we'll put that on our list then on our shopping lists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, baby, Lucas. What is the best compliment that somebody ever gave you?
2: I don't know if there's like a a single a single best compliment. I remember the first the first guy that came in and stole one of my clients from me was a guy that was co managing a uh, a client with me, and uh, and then he ended up taking them from me. And he said uh, he was much older, and I was much younger. I probably wasn't equipped to manage the artist and said, you know, said, went on and on about how I'll never get accused of not working hard enough. You know, I like to think I'm the, the work smarter, not, not harder, but I think I'm the work smarter and harder. Mm. Like I am a perennial 18 hour day. If I need to like really leave it all on the field. And the, the funniest question I get asked is, well, how do you have time for all of it? I'm like, trust me, I find the time. If I have to burn the candle at both ends, I heard that. Um, you know, I, I, I make the time and, you know, there's just, uh, you know, there's, uh, I I, I try to, I try to really just make as much time available to take care of the people in my life because I read this great article from Rick Rubin a couple of years ago where he was explaining why his life is so minimal. Like this guy's like a mattress on the floor and really expensive speakers and not much else, right? And why he's focused on just minimalism and, and health and just, just not, you know, not having all this stuff to clutter his life. And his thing was, you know, if you, you know, if you are in a life of service to others, you have to be available.
0: Yeah. And so a good
2: one. I've always thought about that, which is I have to be available to others. And so, you know, I try to, I try to really just make as much time during the day available to, to, to be of service to the, to the people that we, that, that we work with. But, you know, I think that, you know, the the best compliment I get nowadays is really once in a while, I'll have a client stop and, and pause and kind of say, uh, uh, Hey man, I really, uh, uh, you know, I really appreciate, you know, the work you do or whatever moments, you know, this is a thankless job. I, I, um, I, I went to this, this talk once that that Shep Gordon who's a pretty famous manager did. And he said, uh, he said, it really, you really have to care about helping other people. Like this is mm-hmm. a, you know, like in the, in the dog mm-hmm. days of represent in, in the dog days of representation, you're doing it for other people and you're putting other people first and you're being selfless. And that alone has to be enough. Yeah, um, It can't be about, you know, I've always had an issue with like executives that are focused on being famous. I think you can be high profile as a means of spreading your message. But I think being famous is an epidemic for executives. And I think you, you know, it's, it's really about, it's really about the uh, being the guy behind the guy, you know, mm-hmm. it's being behind the velvet yeah. curtain and being the person of service. And, uh, and so I love that. And I love being of service to these people. And every once in a while, these guys will give you a compliment and they'll say, Hey, you know, I just want you to know, I really appreciate the, the work you guys do. And I, and I always make sure to stop and bold underline, italicize it and tell them, Hey, that means a lot to us because we don't get that that often. And I'm not convinced the people that don't say it. Don't care, you know, or don't mean it. It's just kind of like our artist talent doesn't, you know, aren't necessarily self aware enough to, to stop and say thank you sometimes. So Y'all sometimes it's implied. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, sometimes it's implied. Um, you know, but, um, but you know, this is a real, you know, representation and service is like wedding vows. I mean, it's, you know, it's in sickness and in health for better or worse. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, peaks That's- and valleys. Lots of valleys. Sometimes <laughs> you know it's long stretches of valley. You know I've been really thankful to have people that we've had in their success and their in between, and you know what we do for people in their in between, I think sometimes is is more than what we do for them in success. So wow. So yeah.
0: What a way to say it, man. Love it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> what what's what's one amazing record that you would want us to check out right now?
2: Um the latest new record that i'm listening to is uh this great kind of folky dark pop artist named phoebe bridges yeah and uh she's got, she's got a record called punisher and it's fantastic wow. um, I, I sent it to a client of mine the other day who said this is the best record i've heard in the last 10 years like i i i think it's i think that's pretty amazing um i also for a guy who sits around and listens to pop music all day I am a big jazz head. I mean, I listen to a lot of jazz because I just I just don't I just it's just just so much commercial music you can listen to before you just need to tune out. So there's always jazz in the house. And, you know, and it's not just kind of blue. It sketches of Spain and everything in between. Like it doesn't I listen to the esoteric stuff and the more popular stuff. But um, but I, I find it nice to tune out from pop music once in a while
0: give Give me one esoteric listen because i love jazz so something off the beaten path will be amazing
2: i mean every 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 jazz band has to fall in love with uh with sketches of spain in all of its dissonance miles davis sketches of spain is 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 it is a record that is um is just like a those that know type of record i think um i one one that i think is more palatable that everybody should love is uh is uh, everyone digs Bill Evans uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Bill Evans is Bill Evans is amazing. Uh, I love that he called his record everyone digs Bill Evans but uh, <laughs> anything anything Bill Evans is uh, is fantastic okay. uh, especially his, his his more kind of mellow piano stuff uh, there's a song called uh, peace piece from Bill Evans, which I think is my favorite piano mm. song of all time uh, Wow yeah but there's 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 uh, there's uh, there's just so much to dig into in, in the genre. As a whole. And so much great new stuff being made that that nobody really hears. It's funny because we really do, for Milk and Honey, we really do work in every genre. And I always tell people, except jazz, because there's no money. There ain't no money in jazz no. in 2021. I know. So. <laughs> but it's
0: some of the most amazing music on the planet. Thank you for those songs. Yeah. And that music. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Dindo, did you have Absolutely. one one last thing you might well, wanna? One tiny question before we uh, we let you go, Luke. Just about
2: dogs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we already
1: we've already agreed on that, right? That that uh, dogs are man's best friend.
2: Yes, I think we I think we definitely agree on that. I think uh, any creature that lives day by day does not have to experience what we have to experience. Also, not being conscious sentient beings, like they just don't, they're just not us. But I love, I'm fascinated with. Uh, did you, Vindu, did you by chance see this picture I post online once a year of the dog sitting next to the guy?
1: Yeah, yes, yes, bench? yes, true. Yeah. The dog,
2: so the, sitting, the, the dog is sitting next to the guy on the bench, and the guy's thought bubble is an American Express card and an airplane and a, his house yeah. and all these different thought bubbles. And then the dog's thought bubble is a picture of the guy and the dog on the bench. It's just like another <laughs> picture of the picture, which is, it, it, it just, it sounds cheesy, but it just strikes me. I mean, that's the power of dogs, right? They're just happy to be there with you. So, um, I think uh, I think for us workaholics, they're fantastic to have around. Yeah, absolutely. So, you
1: know. And it's funny, Lucas has two chihuahuas, two tiny dogs, and I have a really yeah. big dog. You do, my little tiny, niece tiny, tiny,
2: tiny but mighty. <laughs> In, exactly,
1: and mine is is um, not so mighty <laughs> and aloof. <laughs> But the sweetest what is the last piece of art that you bought because i know that you love art
2: um two things so i'll give you second last first and then last uh uh i i bought a, a mark chagall painting mm. and uh and i'm just a huge fan of uh i'm a huge fan of classic art or sorry fine classic fine art i mean i i'm also a huge uh, huge david hockney fan yeah. so i have uh, I have a small David Hockney that I bought before that. That's third to last. So I have a, a Hockney, I have a Gall. and then um uh the Hockney one is an interesting opportunity because he's a he's the oldest living modern artist. And so when he's gone, that you know, I think like David Geffen owns like 70% of the Hockney collection or something. Wow. I mean that stuff is gonna be worth that stuff is gonna be worth so much. Um but I was down at Palm Desert about a month ago. And, um, you know, there's a, I was in this, this uh, art gallery. And so the guy that animated all the Looney Tunes stuff was a guy named Chuck Jones. And there's this great story. Um, there's a, I mean, like Vindu, I don't know how much Looney Tunes was like a, was like a, a international thing or how much you <laughs> oh, grew, grew up in a little bit. Oh, it was, trust me, it was. I mean, I think it traveled, but um, there's this great uh, moment in Looney Tunes where, there's the sheepdog and the coyote and they go to the bull ring and they clock in and then they go chase each other around and they try to kill each other. And then they go clock out. One of them's got like the lunch pail and he's like, same time tomorrow, Bob. <laughs> and it's, and so I saw this original animation cell, you know, once they created cells, they could animate faster, right? Cause of the transparency. And so I found this original Chuck Jones signed cell of uh of the the coyote and the and the sheepdog, and I just so I just had to buy it. So that was a that was kind of the most recent one. Um, and it's you know it, I forget what's happening in it, but in many ways it's like inappropriate and something that they would not be able to put in Looney Tunes now, but you know kind of existed then. And uh, you know I forget what he's trying to kill him with, but it's like you know it's 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 funny. And what I, the thing I love about it is to me it's show business. Like if you look at Hollywood, like like there's there's all these people who are like friends, you know, for dinner a few times a year, or they're, you know, they're, this guy's the godfather, this guy's kids or whatever. But it's like, you know, all's fair and love and war. There's people that just like, I can think of 10 people I do business with that I really like. And we're just constantly, you know, we're constantly, you know, this guy's, you know, screwing me on a deal or this thing or that, you know, where you just realize like, Oh, it's just it's it's show business, right? Not show friends, as they say. And yeah, so sure. I just over the years, people would. I mean, I don't subscribe to that from a business no. perspective. That's not my ethic. But you just see it happen a lot in this town. And so I, I have it happen over the years, where somebody would say, "Man, that my relationship with that guy is like I'm the sheep and he's the coyote." <laughs> oh, yeah. And so it would always it would always come it would always come up. And so when I saw that, I was like, I have to buy that. Uh, so yeah, it's a chunk here sign. So, that's, and like that. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. that's the that's that's the la- that's that's the latest art, I guess. So
1: well, since you don't have to go yeah. for like ten more minutes, we'll yeah, ask yeah. you we'll mm-hmm. ask you one shootout questions, but I probably will get an avalanche of responses from you. All right. <laughs> so here's the dirty word of the day. NFTs yeah. Lucas. Yeah.
2: Wait, NFT doesn't that stand for no fucking time <laughs> to talk about that? <laughs> uh, so, uh,
1: I think it does. So,
2: so I, t- I, there's things that I love to, um, I you know, I always have to be careful about what I'm vocal about. Like, I've been really ripping on uh, people leaving California for Texas, a lot of people leaving California right now, and so that's true. I go off on that on social media. And then the guy that runs my new Dallas office is like, hey man, could you tone it down? I'm making fun of Texas. You know, so I get to be careful. I I love to I love to kind of it's less about NFTs and it's more of my kind of like uh what do they say? sheeple, sheep people, I think they call them. They say they say sheeple. I it's more me kind of like ripping on all the sheep yeah, like the idea yeah. of like nfts come out and everybody's okay, like on oh i'm launching an nft and oh you know it's like everybody's like talking about cryptocurrency all that stuff but it's like we're genuinely working on four nfts right now two of them are super high level um you know like we're i have three people in my office that are focused on that space like we already have a partnership done uh, on it like so i'm making fun of it while we're actually about to monetize it i just it's just to me I like to poke fun at like there's like so much there's so much comedy in it. You know what I mean? Just like how yeah. this whole last four weeks, it's like, oh my God, if I hear about an NFT again, I'm gonna go crazy. So <laughs> I from a like comedy is a huge part of my life. And so from a satirical perspective, I have to make fun of all these people, you know, jumping on the 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 bandwagon. Now the idea that somebody will invest in a fractional piece of virtual goods is hilarious to me. But I think but I think that's that's the new world. Like if I don't if I don't understand that, it's kind of like a pop song for me. Like if I hear a song and I don't get it, I can't just make fun of it. I have to understand why an audience does understand it. Yeah. I have to figure mm-hmm. out what am I missing. Um that's an important part of my job. So when I look at the NFT thing, it's like, you know, it's not like I one, two things I've always said, I don't have to be the arbiter of taste. And two, like the biggest mistake you can make ever, especially in entertainment, is to confuse your taste with the taste of the audience. I'm not out hawking my record collection. That is not my job. So my job is to find a mass group of consumers and sell to them. That's a very agnostic way of, you know, a very benign way of speaking about it. Hmm. But, you know, I, the way I look at the NFT thing is it's like, if that's what's happening now, great. That's, you know that's next and if people you know virtual goods we used to talk about them at my old company i mean almost as you know as far as 10 years ago in half life and virtual goods and all that kind of stuff i think um, i think it's just now starting to come together in the way that i think you know in the next 10 years uh, augmented reality is really going to finally happen you know i think there's a lot of technologies that that maybe were nascent at one point in time that are now starting to happen or about to happen so so we're 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 doing the nft thing I hate myself for it, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but yeah, I
1: find your post yeah. hilarious. That that I have to say, but I agree with you. I mean, all kidding aside, and you know, just putting putting aside the fad that that may uh, that it may be surrounded with, and everybody jumping on the band viking. The question is always for me then to ask, like, but why does it strike such chord with people? What is the potential there? What is the technology that it is living on? And is that something that you know could have an, an interesting and it's really impact. it's really, it's
2: really simple it's simple like kids see i'm interested to where i'm interested to see where it lives in the adult market yeah uh but like but like kids kids don't value the piece of art i have on the wall the way they value like a jpeg that they can keep on their phone it's insane
1: yeah it's a social currency uh, i think currency. it's still
2: about d- demand and the way that limited yeah. merchandise drops were have been a thing like it's still about how could i have something that nobody else has um, and being able to show that know, and
1: share that with their friends, that's a big aspect of it, the yeah, social, the yeah, social yeah, currency. Yeah, it's huge,
2: it's huge. And I think I think that um, the particularly exciting space and why it's, or part of the space, and why it's, you know, kind of become such a hot topic this past month is you're seeing artists with smaller audiences than many, you know, that they're, they're, they're not huge artists that are making seven figures in revenue. and uh, And yeah. so I think any kind of new it's like a, a new it's like a new asset class right like it's anything new is is exciting because we just know all of the how often is there something new in the music business where it's like this is just a completely blue ocean space that hasn't been exploited it doesn't come around that often so i think you know in many ways you know what happens is and what's happening with the non-fungible tokens thing is it's like black friday in america where it's like people are just at the front doors yeah. and storming in and <laughs> that's a good analogy some people you know you know some early adopters are gonna are gonna are gonna do something really great with it and a bunch of people will be wrong about it like i i don't need another record producer client of mine calling me about launching an nft it's like listen you don't own your masters the major labels mm. do and what are we talking about what are we selling like it's 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 insane the amount of phone calls I get from clients who are like, I should be doing this. And I'm like, well, why? Yeah. And that's usually when it goes silent.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm like,
2: Explain to me why well, everybody silent, else like, is doing it, Mr. Manager. Cause everybody else is doing it. Right. I'm like, I'm like, okay, great. You're going to, you're going to go convince this big artist you work with to give you an exclusive song. And what does Interscope Records think about yeah. that? You know, it's just, by the way, one of the big things, And I'm sure, Bindu, you're already seeing this and maybe advising some clients on it. But one of the things you're going to see is how does this intersect with the music rights space? How do masters and publishing fall into this? And we're all trying to figure that out. And that is truly a building the plane while you're flying it thing. I mean, you look Mm -hmm. at all these companies that, you look at Twitch, which is making a deal with the labels right now. You look at TikTok, Mm -hmm. which finally made a deal. All of these tech companies roll up they take advantage of safe harbor laws, but they kind of don't really acknowledge the music rights people. And I'm telling you, I'm just I'm going to single out the Universal Music Group team here, but it's like Universal Music, for instance, is the cat around the cage and to trying to get in to get the canary. They will get in and they will get the canary somehow. And the question is just kind of when and how. And so, you know, it's interesting how a lot of these companies try to go around the music rights holders. Um, I am a big copyright, you know, advocate, you know, that Bindu. do. I just, you know, to me, it's like e- e- at some point uh, the NFTs will have to reckon with the rights holders. And It'll just be interesting what that, what that looks like, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and how will, how will those companies, you know, work with, uh, you know, work with, work with the, the various clearances and rights. So I, I'm curious to see that. And a lot of people are asking us that question and I think it's okay to, be a really experienced company or executive and say to people, I don't know, you know, like it's, it's, it's okay to say that and to tell people you're still in an exploratory process, you know?
1: Yeah, true. I've looked into it with a friend of mine, and we're actually having a podcast with him next week about the subject. And he and I have yeah. been looking at blockchain and how rights management could live on a blockchain. And every single time we just yeah. run into a dead end, being being it that the blockchain is great for linear assets, but not for multi-complex um, assets such as music rights, um, where there is no yeah. consensus on metadata. And then you run into a huge... Oh my gosh. Um, well, I wanted to say dirty, another dirty word, but uh, <laughs> and and a huge problem, I shall say. And um, NFTs are great when, as long as it's linear and it's images. And uh, but as soon as as you start questioning who owns the content and is what I've just sold um, in in my image, is that actually mine or did or did I steal Rona's picture? I mean, come on. You know, so so it's it's um it's it's great to see what's happening that people are experiment experimenting with it because it also will um uh, show us where the weaknesses are and where the risks yeah. are, but also where the op- uh, real opportunity is. So I'm very much looking uh deeper into it.
2: Um to just Okay I mean, anytime blockchain and crypto came up in the past, I just told people I said I'm a simple music guy and uh and, and, and it's not going to be my, you know, I'd have people come to me and they say, well, why aren't you doing what Daniel Eck is doing? Like, why wouldn't you go put together a streaming platform? And I'm like, hey, that's a job for someone for 20 years that they exclusively focus on. Like, I have no, even in all of our ventures and the creativity and as entrepreneurial as we are as a company, there's certain things where I just tell people, I'm like, that's for somebody else. Yeah. You know, I I think that, you know, I some of that stuff. Takes me. I kind of view my whole life as like decisions going toward the mountain or away from the mountain. And to me, to chase blockchain just takes me away from the mountain. It's not going to be for me.
0: What's your ultimate vision, if you have one, for yourself or your company, Lucas?
2: uh, Retired on a yacht with $300 million and being 70 years old. I
0: heard that. And sailing
2: around the uh, Mediterranean in summer, Caribbean in winter. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, know. honestly, the, the, the,
1: the, goal is, so bad, is, Lucas. the
2: goal is, th- that was an all right, that was a good uh, projection, right? Uh, I, I, the, the goal is really to keep being able to help people keep doing it on a high level and keep being in a, in a, in a, keep pushing for, uh, you know, for, for keep, keep, you know, trying to be in a position of influence to be able to affect change for these creators, you know, like. I would love to see all of the elements of the Music Modernization Act fully roll out. You know, I'd love to see real change happen for creators. I'd love to see the rates change with the broadcasters. Like, I'd love to know that for, you know, people that I represent, I mean, I have people with houses and kids and cars and, you know, the second and third house and lots of overhead and people that are relying on their copyrights meaning something in the future. If I can... You know, if I can make deal, I always say this as a company: we have the influence to make deals and to to just turn on a dime and do something on a Tuesday that becomes a a, a norm. Yeah. You know, becomes a, a becomes a standard in the entertainment industry. We want to we want to disrupt, and I hate that word because I think people use it. Uh, I think people use it that aren't really disrupting. Mm. But I but I think we we have an actual ability to really disrupt and change deals and change things for creators. And I just want to be able to do that as long as I, as long as I can. I'll be 37 this summer. That's it? Um, you know, yeah. Lucas. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know uh, everybody keeps saying that. They said I was young when I was 22 doing it, but the people say I'm still young at 37. Jeez, I'm not Louise. feeling like that anymore. Um, but the idea is, you know, can I keep doing it into each next decade on a, on a, on a certain level and keep helping creators? That's, That's my only goal. I'm, I'm very happy otherwise and, and life is, life is good. So, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be a, a new client and something new and exciting. And, you know, want to just keep doing it for a long time. That, that's always been important to me. That's really the goal is being around a long time every year in this town, you know, or just this business. You you get the advantage of being around the year before and the year yeah. before that. And the year before mm-hmm. that. When your name comes up in good conversation and you run a business of integrity and, and people know what you do and they trust you and all that. You just have the advantage of being around. You know, 18 years gets me so much that just from doing around being around doing doing good business. Um, you know, they say it takes 20 years to what do they say? It takes 20 years to make your reputation 20 minutes to burn Hello. it down. <laughs> you know, so so I think every I think every year that we get to do good business and do right by people and and have a good name in the community gets us gets us more time. You know, good stuff, yeah, man. Yeah.
0: And just That's please, really can you add streaming to that for them to change streaming? Can you be a disruptor over there so the artists can survive? I'm trying. I'm works. trying. I mean,
2: I I organized the biggest <laughs> letter of songwriters around the world against Spotify. Yeah. Um, I've I've been really I've been really involved just in in advocating. And I don't want to, I don't like to take that torch because there's too many other people, you know, that deserve that credit. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you just look at like, you look at the NSAI in Nashville Mm -hmm. and you look at David Israelite, the NMPA, and you look at just, just, just the amount of people really, you know, Ross Golan, the amount of people that really have made, you know, Dina LaPole to the amount of people that have made real change for songwriters. uh, Those guys get the credit. I got, you know, a lot of songwriters involved in advocating, pretty deeply involved in the mlc and 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 things that i think are going to roll out real change but uh you know my day job is still getting these guys work so I, there's a limited amount of time i could spend on it. where there's other people out there that, that have really you know spent all of their time yeah. dedicated yeah. to to making change sure. it is intimidating as you know it, with the music community going up against the tech companies it's incredibly yeah. intimidating as the way the story the ways these stories are told to me of you know, showing up in D.C. with ninety-eight lawyers in one room and two lawyers representing the, the the music, the, two 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 lawyers representing the music companies and ninety-eight representing the tech companies. It's it's unbelievable what change has already been made, um, because it's not about what's right; it's about who's lobbying yeah, and yeah. the money. Yeah. And by the way, you know, going into a democratic presidency in America where not to wing off on politics for another hour, but, you know, uh, not to get into it, but it's like one of the downsides of something that I think is much better for the world and things are really cooled off over in America, which is a great thing. This is a bad, you know, a, a, a democratic presidency is bad for uh, uh, copyright protection and big tech. Mm. You know, the the Democrats are friendly with big tech, whereas the Republicans are against them. So it'll be very interesting to see. Mm -hmm. People don't realize the Music Modernization Act passed during Republican presidency. So it's going to be very interesting just to see, do we, you know, did we take, forget what crazy stuff was going on in the world, but just from this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, very, very siloed, will we have taken steps forward that then, you Mm -hmm. know, we take five steps back, you know, uh, one of the big, one not. of the big items of the, on the chopping block is songwriters capital gains, which is going to mess up all the catalog sale. Like there's, there's a lot yes. of stuff going on where I wonder if we take some steps back just as it relates to songwriters rights. But again, there's some great people out there, you know, in the U.S. especially pushing, pushing to change that, so. Very interesting.
0: Lucas, this was a yeah. uh, eye opening, right? And <laughs> very informative. <laughs> Ben, did you want to, since this is your buddy, you want to bid him adieu? I thank you so much for coming on today. This has been great. Yeah,
1: my pleasure. Yes, Lucas, it's been an absolutely pleasure talking with you. We we could go on for like 10 hours, I think, about all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, (laughs) Absolutely. But let's do that on on another time and uh, pick another subject. But thank you for sharing. I think this has been very insightful for people to hear what managers do, what they can contribute to an artist's uh, life, And um, about you, get to know you a bit better,
0: Lucas. Yeah, I'm so shocked you're only 37. What's really going on?
2: Really? Uh, What's going going on is the receding (laughs) hairline, the male pattern baldness is what's going on. No, that's Um, really amazing
0: what you have accomplished in this time.
2: Well, I haven't done a lot of sleeping and I haven't done much else in the 18 years. So it's been, uh, you know, working working overtime. But uh, now I appreciate it. And, you know, one of the, biggest drags of this past year is not being able to get to travel and yeah. seeing friends like Bindu in person. And so we're looking forward to that. Absolutely. And, um, we are. You know, I'm sure I will live on an airplane uh, by summer. So. Uh, see.
0: Thank you, Lucas. That's we funny. appreciate you. Lucas, thank you so much. I will speak Absolutely. Yeah, thanks,
2: Bindu. Thanks, for I Appreciate the time. wise
0: Podcast, baby. See you guys next time.